Good morning, brothers and sisters. I hope that you all are, are well. And if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13 this morning. Exodus chapter 13. This is going to be our, our last sermon for a little bit in Exodus as we are now transitioning the summer. Last year we started the summer in the Psalm series, and I want to dive back into that over the summer to get back into the Psalms. Uh, we'll start right where we left off last year in Psalm 9, but that's next week. Uh, but we'll, we'll get there and uh, uh, looking, totally looking forward to, to that. And then coming uh, at the end of the summer, uh, we will be jumping right back into Exodus 14. But today we're going to finish Exodus chapter, chapter 13. And we'll begin reading at verse 17 in, in just a few moments. I told you a couple weeks ago that at the start of chapter 12, we, we've kind of come to the, this pinnacle, this peak of the, of the book of Exodus and it's because that's where the Lord brought about the judgment, was bringing about the judgment of the 10th plague uh, in, in Egypt, right? And, and we see all the descriptions of the, of the Passover and the Passover lamb and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and how they're supposed to be prepared to leave and then how that's supposed to be passed on generation after, after generation. These things are super significant, right? We spent lots of time in them, right? It, was the, it is like this very defining moment and, and event of all the Old Testament, right? It is the defining event in all the Old Testament and in almost the whole Bible. It only comes after the incarnation of the Son of God and the death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. And as we've been seeing these past weeks is that in all of these events, God, God brings it to them for them to remember and memorialize in a way of a meal, right? And in these meals that they memorialize, they are to be teaching their children generation after generation to hear of the Lord's faithfulness and how he has delivered them and brought them out of Egypt. And of course, we know, right, where we see the culmination of all of this, the point of all of all these little those things were all just little types, little pictures, symbols pointing to the Lamb, the spotless Lamb, the Son of God, the Passover Lamb, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And so this significant things that we've been addressing are, have almost like eternal lasting things that go all the way up to us, and even as we talked about last week, just this long, hour-long extended introduction to the Lord's Supper that, that Christ gives us that meal to remember him and to remember what he has done for us. So last week we saw not only the Lord reminds them of the significance and the remembrance of the Passover and the feast, but he also, also gives them this new rite of consecrating all of their firstborns, right? Remember, all of their firstborn, whether it be animals or of their, of their sons, they are to consecrate them unto the Lord, separate them to be holy. And then in that text, we see how God gives them a provision of redeeming them. And of course, the idea of redemption, right? I mean, just totally pulls all the way into the to New Testament. And, and in this idea of redemption, we saw last week, and of course, in the New Testament, we see three explicit things happen, particularly in that text and the New Testament is this, is that every single one of us need redemption. Right? There's not a firstborn that is born or animal that is born unclean or clean that does not need to be redeemed. And secondly, that firstborn cannot redeem themselves. 
They cannot redeem themselves. There's, there's no price that I could pay to redeem myself. There's no price that a son could pay to redeem themselves. But third, God sent his only son, the firstborn among creations, Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. Right? He redeemed us. We talked about last week how precious is his blood, the cost in which it was it cost for us to be redeemed. And therefore, at such a cost, we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to God, which is the source and the foundation and place of all of our hope. Now, now this morning, as as the the, the Passover pinnacle, right, of, of, of the book of Exodus is, has, has just happened here now at the end of chapter 3. We now come to, in a sense, the place in which we kind of understand where the name Exodus comes from. Because they are exiting, they are saying sayonara to Egypt, right? The event of the Exodus is God's people leaving Egypt. And we've already been introduced to this just a just a little bit, we know that in the middle of the night, they were, they were hastily pushed out by the Egyptians, right? They were like, get out of here, we want no more death, we want no more plagues, we want none of this, take everything we have, please go, get out of here, right? And they were pushed out, they carried all their supplies, haste, that the, haste, uh, the hastiness of the meal, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they left with 600,000 people, 600,000 men, upwards to 2 million in all, including this mixed multitude of people other than Israelites that went with them, a huge endeavor to get that many people out of Egypt and out of slavery safely. In fact, in verse 42 of chapter 12, it tells us that it was a night of watching by the Lord. How wonderful was that? The presence of God, God's watching over his people, that he would lead them, guide them, and direct them. And that brings us to our passage this morning in verse 17. So Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people, from before the people. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. We know, and we've, we've said this, and we say this over and over and over again, 
that the Bible is first and foremost about God. We know that the Exodus is about God. We know that it is about his redemptive work to save and to deliver and to provide and to save his people by his own sovereign plan, purposes, and his own glory. Exodus, the book of Exodus, even now, we're, we're just finishing chapter 3 and, or 13, and, but what we see is we, we see how it magnifies the greatness of God. Magnifies it. Later in Exodus 15, known as the, the Song of Moses, Moses exalts in worship of God's holiness and his glorious deeds and his, his wonders, and he does so rightfully, right? Because here's Moses, I mean, I mean, literally a front row seat to some of the Lord's greatest acts of deliverance in all of history. Last week, we thought about theology, we thought about remembrance and redemption. And the time before that, it was biblical theology where we took the, the meta-narrative of salvation through judgment to the glory of God, and, and, and all of that is extremely important. Theology is massively important. However, if we are not careful, we will easily miss the, the practical implications and applications of these passages and of the Bible in general. We do not want to over-spiritualize everything, we also must be careful as well not to over-moralize everything. And I think the Apostle Paul helps us understand particularly how to handle the Old Testament and how to handle these passages in particular in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says this in verse 1. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we may not desire evil as they did. You look down to verse 11, he says this, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written down for what? For our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, now Paul is talking about the, the, the whole Exodus event in particular, and not just here in chapter 13, but for several chapters as they wander through the wilderness trying to get to the promised land. And implicitly, we see how he is... He, he applies the Old Testament can be applied to us. But as you can see, he's pointing to the chapters that we've been referencing, and particularly here, how they have been led in the clouds or under the clouds. And, and here's what's, I think, even more astonishing here, is that Paul is speaking to the church. 
that's in Corinth. Not the church in Jerusalem, but the church in Corinth. That's a mixed bag of people that are not all Jews. Particularly, probably mostly Gentiles. And he says, learn from our fathers. How does that happen? We know that through adoption we had brought in. But as those fathers, they are to be examples to them. Examples, examples to them, examples for us that, that we may not desire evil as they did. So listen, in, in, in God's sovereignty, he has worked out history in such a way that is for our benefit. In such a way for our benefit that we have these examples that have gone before us. In fact, as verse 11 says, it was written down for, for your instruction. For your instruction that we would know what pleases the Lord or how to live and not desire evil. How to avoid the same failures and sin. He also tells us in verse 4 that Christ is, the, is at the center. He is the rock. Christ was, is the rock. But at the end, but in the end, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that example that he is showing them, he's particularly highlighting the negative things that Israel did. The negative things. And so the example is, is don't be like them. Learn from their mistakes, from their example. This is why we have it. And then the instruction then is the, to the church to, is, is, is morality. The example is what not to be. And in Christ, this is what we are to be and what we are aiming for. Now, the sermon is not about 1 Corinthians 10. We're still in Exodus chapter 13. Yet, namely, in our passage, we see God working for his people. We certainly see God working for his people. I mean, he is absolutely the main character there. But there are direct implications and applications in the text for us to be edified to be built up, to be encouraged, to be exhorted, edified to worship, to trust, and to believe, to remember, to have hope, and to have courage. And so the first point from this morning that I want to make, we see from the passage, is that God has a plan for us. You know why I like that point. Because it is so simplistic. It is so simple. It reminds me of the basics of Christianity that I learned so long ago. When I was 12 and 13 years old. And probably some of you learned these things too when you were young. Do you remember hearing verses like Jeremiah 29, 11? For I know I have, for I Know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. I think Christian culture has turned that into a cliche, haven't they? Where it's on our coffee cups and on the front of our journals. 
or if you had one of those rad t-shirts back in the 90s, you know, that was all, you know, the triangles and multicolored and neon and, for God has planned for you, all right? In the context of Jeremiah, is written to Judah, to Israel, as they were going into exile. I mean, God was bringing judgment, discipline upon his people. They were wicked. And deservedly, they were wicked. And they deserved the judgment that God was bringing upon them. And, and he brings them into Babylon. And then right here in the, in the middle of that judgment and exile that's taking place, Jeremiah just, by, by in, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, throws this gloriously beautiful passage of, of God's sovereign hand and care and love for his people despite judgment. Now, does that promise exactly apply to us? And I would say not exactly. But we do know that God has a plan for us. A plan for, of welfare. A plan for hope. Because the same God that had welfare and hope for Israel is the same God who has, plan, has, has planned for your good and for your joy and for your hope, which is in Christ Jesus. Which, by the way, the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 ultimately has its fulfillment in Christ. Our welfare is the joy found in Christ from the evil of our own sinful natures. We are ourselves were in exile. We put ourselves in exile and slavery to, to sin, our own Babylon. And yet Christ has brought us out. He has a greater joy for our welfare. He has given us a future. There is an eternal hope that we now have to an imperishable inheritance from the curse of death. So the promises that we have in Christ are far greater. And we're going to talk about this in a minute, so I don't want to get to it. Are just so far greater. Even in Jeremiah 29 11, we see Jesus, the fulfillment of that. It's not just plans of prosperity in this dumb fallen world. But it's the prosperity of eternal life and joy. <clears throat> And I say all that because here in Exodus 13, 17, and 18, the Lord has a sovereign plan for his people as they are exiting Egypt. It says when, when Pharaoh led the let the people go, God did not lead them. By the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds and see the war and return to Egypt, but God led the people did not lead them, but led them around by the way of the wilderness toward the sea. And the people of Israel went up and out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So Israel is on this road to freedom, right? They are bound to the promised land. They're on their way to the, to the promised land. And, and logically, right, we type in, they, they typed in their GPS, take us to the promised land. Turn left here. Go straight here. And the road which they would have taken, point A to point B, the shortest route, would have been the road north by the way of the Mediterranean Sea. And if they would have kept going, and it would have had no problems, it probably would have been about a two-week journey, maybe a little bit longer when you have that many people. 
But about a two-week journey, I think, it's, I think I read it was around 150 miles or so. But as verse 17 says, that way was the land of the Philistines. And so what does God do? He changes that plan, doesn't he? He has a plan. And the Lord's concern is not the shortest distance between point A and point B. His concern was for their protection and for their morale. If they went straightway out, he says, war would have been inevitable. And they weren't ready for, for combat. And as it says, the Lord already knows how fickle Israel is. And I think, and, and I think we'll see that absolutely, uh, we'll see that clear as we move on through Exodus. And they'll believe, right, Israel will believe this lie, right, this lie that Egypt was better, which, by the way, in the Passover meal, those bitter herbs was to, as they were tempted to think, oh, man, things were better back then, things were better. No, man, here's the bitter herbs of slavery. It was terrible. It was terrible. But yet they were always tempted to believe that, eh, that Egypt was, was better. And yet the Lord's plan is to take them south, south to the, to the Red Sea. And this is where you can turn to the back of your Bibles and you can find the maps and you can see which way they, they went. And now, granted, those aren't 100% accurate. don't know the exact trail that they went. But they went that way in that direction toward the Red Sea, as we know, and then down into to Mount Sinai. And yet what we see here as God was leading them according to his plan, that this is ultimately his providential care of his people. Because he knows what's best for them, even if it takes the long road to get there. He knows his people and he mindfully rules over their needs greater than they know themselves. Brothers and sisters, he knows our weakness. He knows your vulnerabilities. He, he knows your temptations. And he, he knows your fears. And in his providential care over our lives and in his divine plan that he has for our lives, he takes all of those into the considerations for his people, doesn't he? as he is the one who rules over everything. And the point of this is, yes, the sovereignty of God. But in his providence, he is merciful in his plan in the way that we should go. It's always for our good. The Lord's plan is not always, is not always the easy way. It's not always the, the shortest distant, distance. It certainly won't be for Israel. I mean, we know this. Certainly it's not going to be the shortest distance. They're, it's going to take them over 40 years to get to the land of the Canaan, not two weeks. Right? Things aren't going to be easy when they get to the Red Sea. They're going to be backed up to the Red Sea with an army bearing down upon them. This is not going to be an easy road. It's going to be a very long road. And they're still over and over again. They're going to be tempted to turn back to Israel or back to Egypt. But God's plan has its purposes. And as he has his purposes, we can trust that they're always, always, always good. Our brother led us at the beginning of our assembly this morning, reading from Genesis chapter 50. And you heard in verse 20 
that deep, spiritual, God-glorifying, sovereign, hope-building, as it says, as, as Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If you didn't know this, this is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. This is Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament, right? Here it is. God's plan doesn't always look good. Tell that to Joseph. He knows. God's plan doesn't always look good. In fact, God's plan sometimes could feel and be fairly miserable. It can be painful. It can be difficult. It can be filled with suffering and persecution and even physical death. But I want you to understand, I'm not dismissing. I'm not overlooking pain. I'm not overlooking those things. I understand those things from my own life. But more importantly, don't listen to me. Listen to the Bible. Because the Bible never shies away from the difficulty of life. It never shies away from it. Forget those prosperity morons. They're dumb. They're unbiblical. They're heretics. This, the Bible does never shy away from it. It shows us very firmly that the long way of God sometimes is the very best for us. It's always, always, always good. We look at the life of Joseph here. Not, a, not an easy road for Joseph. We want to think, oh, Joseph, the, the prince of Egypt. But how about Joseph, the slave in Egypt? How about Joseph who was dying in a pit because his brothers, all of his brothers, threw him in there for his death and then dragged him out to make money off of him and sold him into slavery and then thrown in the prison a couple times by Potiphar and Potiphar's wife. Injustice after injustice after injustice. And yet what is God's sovereign good plan for his life. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. How about the life of the Apostle Paul? Did all that yelling about Joseph, but what about Jesus? How about Jesus? You know, we, we may not know or understand or like what God is doing but let the theological foundation by which you are standing upon, which is the truth of God's word, is that you can always trust. You can always trust that for those that love him who are called according to his purpose, he is working all things out for your good. That's Romans 8.28. And underneath all of that, Underneath all of that, Romans 8, 29, he is using all of these things according to his plan, his sovereign plan, to conform you into the image of his son. To God be the glory. The problem is, is what we're fixing our eyes on. We see life, vitality, health, acceptance, as being better than being conformed into the image of his son. God's plan changes that perspective. Because that's a greater hope for us. 
to make us more and more like his son. He is sovereign and, and good in working out all of these things for us. And so as I started, right, these theological things have massive application and implication for our lives. And if you haven't guessed it yet, it's just trust. Trust in the plan that God has for you. Trust in the plan that we can trust and, and believe that he has your greater good in mind, has taken all things in consideration, things that you could never even see or perceive. He has all of these things, and the reason why, it's not just he, he, he knows, but he's already there. He's God. He's ordained all things. And so like Philippians 3, Paul applies Somewhat this, he talks about trusting, and he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I am pressing on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in any you think otherwise, God will reveal that also in you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life isn't a blind faith. It isn't arbitrarily believing in wishful thinking, but our faith is in this one sure fact that Paul, the reason why he can say this, of this goal that he's pressing on to, through all the persecution, through all the loss, through all of the abandonment that, that he went through, through the, the nakedness, the swords, the beaten, the bit by snakes and shipwrecks, the reason is, is this, because he serves a resurrected Savior. He serves the living Jesus Christ and believing and knowing and trusting in that has us, has this firm foundation that I don't know, I don't know what's happening, but I'm going to keep leaning in, I'm going to keep pressing on because of the reward that is ahead of me. God knows what's best because he is what's best. And this isn't just some elementary lesson of God knows what's planned for you. This isn't just some elementary lesson for some children or young Christians, brothers and sisters. It is for all of us. And like the Apostles Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, we are edified to press on and to make it our own. To continue straining forward. Straining forward, leaning into what, what lies ahead because of the prize that is in Jesus Christ, and we will be just like Israel in a way that the wilderness is before us and we have no clue where we're going. We have no idea why God would lead us this way and what the plan is, but what we do know that we always are standing upon is the goodness of God. And he always has our good in mind. And he's taken all things in consideration. And so Proverbs 3, right? Remember Proverbs 3. Verse 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he, listen, will make your paths straight. And he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and always turn from evil. It will be healing in your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I mean, that's wonderful. That, that's so wonderful there. 
We don't. We may not know the plans that God has for us. We don't know, but our, but our call is to trust with all of our heart. Don't lean on our own understanding of the world's understanding. Not to be wise in our own eyes, but fear him. Turn from evil. Be obedient. And listen to that promise, that, that, that leaning upon him. It would be like healing to your flesh. I call that peace. I call that peace. Healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Restoring to us. So the first is the plan of God. The second, this point this morning, is the promise of God. Or we can say it like this, is that the Lord is always faithful to keep his word. In verse 19, a quite peculiar verse, it says that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. Because Joseph had made, had made the sons of Israel to swear God will surely visit you and, when you, and you shall carry my bones with you when you leave from here. And again, we read that this morning in Genesis 50, didn't we? At the beginning of our assembly, and it was at Joseph's request to his family that, that when they go back to Canaan, the land of their fathers, the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that they would take his bones with them out of Egypt. And so as we read in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph died at the, the ripe old age of 110 in Egypt. He died in Egypt, and he was embalmed, and he was put in a coffin. So sort of like in the ways and that you would understand a mummy. He was mummified in a way. Now, I've, I first saw a mummy at, um, when I visited Southern Seminary. After I graduated college, I went up and visited the school, and they had a small archaeological museum, and they had a le real, legit mummy in there. <laughs> Wildest thing. I'm like, why did a bunch of Baptists have a mummy? It's still pretty cool, though. A mummy. I don't remember the age and how old it was. But here, 430 years later, Joseph, still laying in his coffin, is being taken back. And Moses remembers this request. And he made sure that Joseph was taken out with him, right? Let's bring him with us. There's some, some, I think there's some important things for us to note here. Number one, I don't think we can get around, get around but to say the commitment that, he, that, they, that they made to, to Joseph was being fulfilled. And certainly there's some sentimentality in this request, right? We can understand that, that, that Joseph wanted to go home. We recounted quite a bit about Joseph, and, and, and literally he was forced out of his own land by his brothers. He was sold into slavery, and he had never returned to his homeland. But he knew the plan and promise of God, and that God was providing for his people as he was, because he was brought to Egypt. Now this incredible love to fulfill such a promise to carry Joseph's coffin for literally over 40 years until Joshua buries him in Shechem. This is certainly an honoring thing. They're honoring Joseph. But there's something more here than just sentimental, the sentimentality of I want to go home. Right? We can understand that. We can oblige of that. We do things like that for family. But here we see Joseph's request 
is an expression of belief and faith in the promises of God. He's, he's saying all the years before, he says, I believe and I know the Lord will take us out of Egypt. And when he does, when he does visit you, bring me with you. I know he's going to do this because how? Because God made that promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 14. Joseph had faith in the promise of God. And, and, and just in case, if, if you want to question whether that's really faith and not just mere sentimentality, the Bible explicitly tells us that it is faith. In that wonderful chapter, Hebrews 11, in verse 22, it says, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. That's faith. Joseph's faith, like all the patriarchs, was in the promise of God that God would fulfill his promises. And here is Moses, right, taking Joseph's coffin out of Egypt with them, not out of of, of mere sentiment but or even love but as a physical reminder that all that see this coffin that God keeps his promises do we have such reminders that God has kept his promises and that he will keep his promises well the Bible is replete with the promises of God in the New Testament, we, we know in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, that it tells us that Christ, that in Christ all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him to the glory of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the greatest promise of God. The fulfillment of his, his, his first promise. That he, being the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent on the cross and in his resurrection... He is the better Adam, the better Abraham, the better Moses, the better David. He, he never sinned, and he was perfectly obedient to the Father's will, even led to the cross. Jesus Christ, he has fulfilled the, the will of all, of the will, excuse me, he willfully fulfilled all the promises of, the, of God, his Father. Jesus has fulfilled them all. And like the promise that those whom he foreknew, he is also predestined that they would be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 29. We have a promise such as Philippians 1, 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not like Joseph. We're not dead. But in some ways, like Joseph, the promise that's made that we will be carried home. That we will be made complete when he comes again. And, and hear this loaded promise that, that sums up so many promises as it starts out in a doxology in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, right? Here's salvation accomplished. The promise of salvation that he has fully, completely accomplished. 
So to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, right? Here's the assurance, that the promise of assurance that we can wake up each day, something that we wake up each and every day to live for. A living hope. Here's another promise, to an inheritance. And what is that inheritance? An eternal life with him. And that inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's promise, and God, excuse me, God's power, are being guarded through faith. There's a promise for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. That's eternal security, and we call that and we call in that, that theology, we call that perseverance of the saints, that he is preserving us and guarding us and making us ready for a salvation that is to, to come. How about one more? Let me give you one more great glorious promise. Hebrews 13, verse 14. For we have no lasting city, meaning nothing here. Nothing here that's lasting. Nothing's going to last. Jesus already told us, right? Moth and rust will destroy but we seek the city that is to come. How about that promise? The city that is to come, the glorious promise that he is, he is going to come again and he is going to gather his own unto himself. So how do you know that you've been forgiven? How do you know that these promises were true? How do you know that he is going to keep these promises? How do you know that you've been redeemed? How do you know you've been pre, uh, predestined? How do you know that you're going to be made complete? How do you know that there's an inheritance waiting for you? How do you know that he's coming back? How do you know? And you know because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. That's how you know. And that tomb is, is empty. And all of the promise of God finds his yes and amen in him. And he will keep his promises. And so as his people, then we daily can live and build our lives upon his promises. Upon those glorious promises. And then lastly, at the end of our passage, we see the, the very presence of God with his people. The presence of God. Verse 20, they moved from Succoth and encamped at Etham upon the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by the day in the pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel, might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart before this people. What an extraordinary way the Lord manifested himself with his people. That he would be with them all day long. And all you had to do was look outside. Verse 20 tells us they're on the edge of, that, of, of the wilderness. And what was before them, as we said earlier, is, just, is a complete unknown. Except for maybe Moses. Moses has been on the wilderness. And what was before them was, was completely unknown, right? They, but they had the past behind them. They had the past behind them. They, they remembered what the Lord had done for them. They already they had vivid memories, right? These are very fresh, vivid memories of God's glorious, strong-armed work to humble Egypt to deliver his people. And we have the same thing, right? We, we have vivid memories and images of God's faithfulness to us 
with decades of experience in this room. We could, we could stay here all day recounting the faithfulness of God to each of us. And then they had the bones of Joseph carrying with them, right? The reminder that God keeps his, his promises. That they were to take back with them to a land that none of them have ever been to. And yet they've heard the promise that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And the same for us. We have these things that God has given us to rely upon. A, a treasure trove of, of God's word that is living and active. The promises of eternal life and rest and peace and future kingdom. But in, but in the last two verses, it strikes us, as I'm sure it strikes them, that God sends his, his very presence in the form of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to, to lead them on the path, the plan that God has for them in the wilderness of the unknown. And verse 22 indicates also to this, I think very importantly, how the presence of God will continually lead them and be with them. Now clouds and fire, they're often symbolic in the Bible. Right? Very symbolic in the Bible. Right? The Lord uses these as symbols to associate himself. In Genesis chapter 15, when, when the Lord made covenant with Abraham, the Lord passed through as a cloud, as and as a flaming torch before him. And of course in Exodus we see how the Lord revealed himself to Moses. Where? Mount Sinai at the burning bush that wasn't really burning. But still burning. And then in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus ascends into heaven he is received where? Into the clouds. In Acts chapter 2, when the presence of God came and the, and the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, it came like a, a rushing wind, and then how did, they, how did they begin to speak? Like those with tongues of fire. Jesus told us in John chapter 14 and in John chapter 16 that those who are in Christ will have the indwelling presence of God manifested as the Holy Spirit. And he says in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 that, that the presence of the Holy Spirit is even greater than his own presence, which then definitely tells us it's greater than the presence of a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then the very presence of the Holy Spirit of God is in you. And not only has the Holy Spirit accomplished our regeneration, but he continuously dwells in us, like verse 22, continually will lead them. And to guide us, and to guide us throughout the wilderness of the unknown in this fallen world. He convicts us of sin and he, he leads us in righteousness. And in all things, what does the Holy Spirit do? He, he glorifies Jesus Christ by showing us all things and declaring the glories of Christ to us. And as the cloud of fire led Israel to God's mountain and Mount Sinai to receive the law, what does the Holy Spirit do? 
Romans chapter 7 tells us that the Holy Spirit writes God's law on our hearts. Romans 8, again, tells us that since we are now in Christ, as Romans 6 says, we've been raised, we were raised with him from the dead. Romans 8 says that we are no longer in the flesh, but rather we are in the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in us, has taken residence and camped with us, tabernacled with us. It is the Spirit that that leads us to understand our adoption and declares to us that we are sons, right? That we may declare, Abba, Father. He's telling us over and over again that you are no longer slaves, but children. That you are sons and that you are heirs, co-heirs with Christ. To be led by the Spirit, brothers and sisters, is no mystical experience in which we learn some new knowledge or revelation from God. Being led by the Spirit in everything, He guides us by the Word of God. That we may understand how to know Him and love Him more and be more obedient to Him and glorify Christ. And when when you resist and fight temptation, you are saying yes to Jesus. You are being led by the Holy Spirit. And every time your heart is set on the, the heavenly inheritance rather than earthly treasures, brothers and sisters, you are being led by the Holy Spirit. Every time you open the word of God, he, he's guiding you in understanding and giving you illumination to the text because spiritual things are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. And so we are compelled then to live by the Spirit, putting to death the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and of the world. And so we have hope and we have courage we have courage in this raging world that is so fallen we have courage and we have hope brothers and sisters listen to me because the presence of God is with you the presence of God is with you the Holy Spirit is within you three simple Elementary points. God has a plan for your life. The promises of God and God's presence is with you. These are edifying. They build us up. They encourage us. They strengthen us. They give us courage. But they also exhort us a little bit, don't they? They exhort us a little bit. They, they correct us a little bit. They, they, they pull us back in in many ways. Because we, we feel that struggle and strife and, and swaying and wanting to look back to Egypt because we still live in a fallen world with a fallen nature at times. And we feel, we understand the weight of that. But here are passages like this that are, that are pulling us in again, remi- reminding us that all of our hope is in Christ. And that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. 
that we have a living hope because it is deeply rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive. And we're pulled back in because when we think that this world is just going to hell in a handbasket, because it is, and we think that there's no hope, AI is going to take over the world kind of stuff, and so many of other things, we're drawn back in, right? We're pulled back in because, listen, one day he is coming back. And he is going to make all things new. He is coming back as a conquering king, riding a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth and a tattoo on his leg that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming. And he's going to make all of that new and all things right. And so that deeply then roots us and settles us and puts us right on that firm foundation again. It digs the pillars of our life right deep down so that we can live our lives upon those things. And even until then, he is given. He's not just leaving us and saying, I'm going to come back. I'm going to leave, you know, I don't know when, but I'm coming back. And he doesn't leave us by ourselves, but he gives us his presence, right? He gives us the presence of his, of, of his Holy Spirit. Lo, I am with you always. Man, do you believe that this morning, church? Do you believe that? Do you comprehend that? Are you, are you letting that truth just kind of settle down deep into your soul? The third part of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit, indwells in us. And he gives us courage, not only to face trials in this life, but also, brothers and sisters, the courage to stand peacefully. Not to give in to the rage like the rest of the world, but to be peaceful and humble like Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And you want to know why? Because literally, Jesus was with them. And so in all of this, let us be, let us be in awe of God. So, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has been a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. And to him be glory forever and all of God's people say. And amen.